So we are continuing through 1 Corinthians, and our, our phrase for this has been a messy church. Corinthians had, the church in Corinth had a lot of problems, uh, yet they also had a lot of opportunities in pagan Corinth to reach people for Christ. And so we take heart for ourselves. We have messy lives, uh, difficulties at church or wherever, but we also have opportunities and mission that are given to us. Uh, today, I, we approach our text, for me, with a little more trepidation because it seems to be culturally and religiously very, very distant from us. We have to get our mindset ready to enter into what it was like to be a first century Corinthian. And so if, with that in mind, I want to sort of introduce our text a little bit by saying, historically, uh, polytheism... For people to have many little g gods or animism to believe that the spirits of the departed, that those gods or spirits had a direct influence on things that are visible. So we're not trying to promote idolatry or animism here, but we do want to give credit to the rest of history and the rest of the world that all those people knew something that we modern Westerners have lost. Namely, that there's a real unseen realm out there of, of angels, of the living God, and of demonic hosts that have an interplay with what we see that is visible. So historically, this was very important. In Corinth, there were at least 13 different temples that have been uncovered. These were specific gods with their specific temples and their specific domains of influence. And you would know the names of some of these, Apollo, Aphrodite, Sisyphus. Each one of these had a temple and there were many others. And so what you would do if you were in Corinth Everything that you work at in your life now in various ways, you would bring to the gods for some resolution. So had someone stolen from you or was there an issue of injustice? Will you go to the appropriate temple, you make an offering or sacrifice, and you often write down a prayer. And if you look in Bath, England, they have tablets of curses that have been uncovered that are just beyond the first century where all these people said, uh, to the god so-and-so, Sulis, uh, will you curse and take care of the person who stole my robe from beside the baths here? And if you were sick, you would do the same thing. You would go to the appropriate temple and make offerings and pray for healing. Uh, if you wanted protection on a trip, etc., etc., this is how you carried out your life. And those temples also had dining areas. Not all of them, but some of them had dining areas. So someone would bring a goat to sacrifice the goat. You would offer the goat to the god. Then the priest would take their share. And then you could sit around a dining room table or a dining table and eat the meat that was left over. And you would be eating inside that temple. And part of the thing that you might not understand is that the whole social fabric was bound up in that. It was sort of like going to Olive Garden. I had to ask the 815 service if, there was, if Olive Garden was still in business because I don't keep up with this stuff. They assured me that it was. So, you know, going to the temple is like going to Olive Garden. So if you were a boot maker, for example, 
then you had your guild of bootmakers, and all of you would have your like um, uh, chamber of commerce type gathering where you got all the bootmakers together, and you would go to the god's temple that was in charge of selling boots robustly, and you would eat their sacrificial meat that had been given over. So this had both a religious and idolatrous connotation as well as a social connotation. So you can see that to withdraw from that system would have lots of consequences for you if you lived in Corinth. So today we're taking up this issue of food sacrifice to idols. And so we'll comment a little bit more of that, but our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. It's on page 11 in your worship guide. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So what are we going to take out of this text? I want to warn you that we have three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, to deal with the issue of food sacrificed idols. And we're going to reach some further conclusions later on. So the point that we want to take out of this text today is this. Simply, it is a command or a duty of yours to be wise in knowledge and love. Okay. When we leave today, we want to have considered what it means to be wise in knowledge and in love. And we're going to look at that under a few headings. We're going to talk about be careful with your knowledge. And then the second one is going to be, be careful to know your brother. And then the third one is going to be, be careful that your knowledge is submitted to love. Be careful that your knowledge is given in love. So let's begin then by talking about, be careful with your knowledge. Now, I need to to give a few prefatory comments before we look down at the text. Paul wrote to the Corinthians a letter, we know that for sure, and we know that they have written a letter back to him. We don't know for this for sure, but the text seems to imply that in his first letter, Paul said to them, don't eat 
inside pagan temples. Don't eat in the courts of pagan temples. Don't know that for sure, but that seems a reasonable conclusion. Now they're writing back to him. And if you remember, they had the first question they had last week was about marriage. And the phrase that sets off their questions or their statements in their letter, he responds by saying, now concerning, now concerning. And that divides up the text. So if you look at verse 1, he says, now concerning food offered to idols. And the appearance of this text is that they were bucking against Paul for saying you shouldn't or must not eat in a pagan temple. And they're challenging his authority to be able to say that. And remember, he's already identified this group of sort of rebellious people in Corinth as people who say, we've got knowledge. You know, we're, we're the Greek sophists. We know, we, we know who are, and then they, they really resist his apostolic authority. So like, who are you to tell me I can't eat at Olive Garden? That sort of thing. And so when you see this, the ESV has sort of done us a favor by putting parts of the text in, in parentheses because those seem to be the parts that he extracted from the letter they sent to him. Are you with me on this? That's where we are. So he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So in this whole argument and in this text, it's very important for you to understand that it looks like Paul is giving them an ad hominem argument of a certain form. He's saying, I'm going to grant the things that you've said to me. I'm going to grant you those things. And then in the end, I'm going to show you why you're still wrong. All right? So he's agreeing with them. We all possess knowledge. And then if you look down at verse 4, it says, uh, as, as for eating foods offered to idols, we know, quote, that an idol has no existence. So what they're saying is, hey, we have been, we've been enlightened. And then down in verse 6, they have a, a true monotheistic confession, don't they? We've been enlightened. For us, there's only one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom, are, for whom all things exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We all agree that that's an orthodox, true confession from them, right? But then they expand that to say an idol is nothing. Now, it's true that an idol is not really a god. It's something that people made up. But later on, another chapter from now, he's going to say there are demons, there are demonic elements behind that. So the, the thing I want you to take away from this, in their knowledge, these people at Corinth have something true. All right? Write it down in your worship guide. They have something true, and he's granting them that. They have a monotheistic confession of God's creating work through the Son. It's true. It's the right thing. But what we're going to find is that that truth is a partial truth. Because they've concluded then that it's just irrelevant, these idols. There's only one God. We can do whatever we want with idols. And later he's going to tell them, you can't share the table of Christ and the table of demons. So he'll get to that. He's granting their argument for a period of time. And so the other thing that's wrong is that their application is wrong. It seems to be from the text that what they're saying is, hey, we want all these weak brothers to be enlightened like us. 
We know there's only one God, so yippee, let's go to Olive Garden, let's go eat in the temple, let's do whatever we want because idols are just nothing. They have, a, they have true knowledge, but it's partial, it's incomplete. Their application is wrong. So where are we going with this? Be careful with what you know. Are you with me? Be careful. Paul's saying be careful with what you know. And so when you think about this, Protestantism uh, from the time of the Reformation on is a story of Protestant fragmentation in many ways. And we find lots of things that we say, I'm right about this. I'm just absolutely right. And I'm going to fight with anybody who disagrees with me. And so in our own history, in in the tradition of, of this denomination church, uh, there was a man that I respect named Cornelius Van Til. He's a famous apologist. And he got in an argument in the last century with another Presbyterian guy named Gordon Clark. And it was a heated, big debate. And all the theologians and apologists lined up on both sides of the aisle, one for one and one for the other. Do you know what they're arguing about? They're arguing about what is God's knowledge, the extent of that knowledge in relationship to man's knowledge, and what's the overlap of the two. Now, I just want to say from from the get-go, you're probably going to have a hard time finding a lot of proof text about that, right? I mean, they were already from the beginning in like deep water. And then let's let's go out, uh, if you look historically back uh, at the First Great Awakening in the 1700s, there were Baptists that settled in the Appalachian Mountains. And I love my Baptist friends. I can pick on Presbyterians. I can pick on Baptists too. And they decided the real conservative ones who had the truth. I'm really talking to a group. I I want you to say, you're all people who've got the truth, right? So we want to let this get asked. Well, the old regular Baptists, uh, they had the truth and they had to separate a little bit. Are you going to call yourself old regular Baptists or primitive Baptists? That's where my country cousins used to worship up in North Carolina, out there in Appalachia. Well, guess what they all got in an argument about? Predestination and the existence of evil. And they fought over it and they separated associations and separated churches and fragmented all over the place. And the question I want to ask you is, how many people were alienated from the church of Christ? If you look at this text, you find that a consequence of what they were doing is that a brother would be destroyed. A brother would be driven away from the faith into idolatry. And so we really want to take seriously what Paul's saying here, that you can have true knowledge. You need to say, though, with Paul from 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part and we prophesy in part. We only know partially. And is my application that I'm imposing on you really appropriate for you? Do I... Do I know what I'm talking about? Is it, is it really complete? And so there's a quote from a philosopher and pastor named Dallas Willard. You see that I'll refer to him a lot. And I think that his quote, I hope it sticks with me even more, but it certainly was arresting in its simplicity. Dallas Willard says, one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. Can I say that again? One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. 
Now, if you're listening, and I hope you are listening, and uh, maybe I hope, I don't know, that you're thinking and maybe you're getting riled up. Maybe you'll get riled up later. That Parker, he's sending us down the chute to subjectivism and relativism. We're not going to be able to say anything's true anymore. Well, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Paul's saying. What are we saying? Can we handle our truth with humility and ultimately with applicatory pastoral kindness? And we are particularly susceptible to this in our circles because we really do believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God and then it has true statements in it. And that's not really the question, is it? The question is, how are you handling those matters? And then I have just one other question about being careful of your knowledge. And I, I think I've seen this in Africa and Anima Society and other places. But uh, call me cynical if you want to, but these knowledge folks, these knowledge folks in this text who are saying, we're free, we believe there's one God, we can go eat in the temples, is that because you really believe that and think it's important to push that agenda with its kernel of truth? Or do you just like eating at Olive Garden? What's really happening? Are you afraid you're going to get kicked out of the Bootmakers Guild? What's really going on in your heart to push this agenda? So we want to be careful with our knowledge. We want to know that it's partial. We want to say our applications need to be tailored to individuals and that, that we want to be careful with that. And we want to look at our own motives, like why might I be pushing an agenda? And we want to keep saying that there's truth that's involved in it. Now, he's granting them their propositions, but he's going to overturn later on. He's going to tell them, you're wrong about eating in temples. And, but we have to wait for that. We have to get that later. What's the second point? So the first point is be careful about your knowledge. The second point is be careful about your brother. Look at verse 7. It says, not all possess this knowledge. And I wonder if that knowledge needs to have quote marks around it as well because he's clearly using knowledge that these people have as a kind of, yeah, you say you've got knowledge, but it just puffed you up. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So we find out now that they're, they're brothers. And may I just refer to everybody in the church as brothers following the Greek. I'm including men, women, children, everybody. Uh, they have a weak conscience on this matter because they're used to going to these temples and eating this food and actually worshiping and trusting the idols that are associated with it. And he says then in verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And, and this is a challenge for those of you who have reformed views of how people get saved and perseverance. Uh, there, there are people in the congregation who might not be truly born again that you're driving away to syncretistic polytheism. It's a serious issue. 
You're driving them back to worshiping idols by your so-called freedom. So do you know who your brother is? Do you know how your speech and behavior is affecting other people in the body? So as we think about this, I was, I was reading um, a counselor named Ed Welch. Some of you will know Ed. Uh, he actually was involved in the churches that we were in up in Philadelphia. And Ed um, has been teaching prospective counselors for a long time. He's written a lot of books and whatnot. And he has a, a post about listening. And in his post, he said, we always tell counseling students and people who are in training that you need to listen, 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 listen. And he said, I can see sometimes people's eyes glazing over. And what they're really thinking is, yeah, 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 I got this on day one. I need to listen. I don't interrupt people. I don't give them long speeches. I have kind of a little time clock where I let them talk for a long time. I build rapport. And then, you know, I let my knowledge go. You know, I let, I let, I let myself go with knowledge. And Ed was saying, if, if I as an instructor have communicated that to you, I'll take responsibility for not talking about what listening really is. It's about actually hearing the other person, what's important to them, what touches their emotions, sorting out the things that are extraneous from the things that really get to the heart. And he talks about asking good questions and all those kinds of things. And I think that that really models for us what it would look like for, for me to think about my brother. Now, you just have to appreciate for me, I have to get up here and say something that's true and I have to apply it. And I don't know all of you in detail. So there are kind of limits to what you can do with this, but it ought to be our aim and our goal to make sure that our knowledge, when and if it's doled out, is doled out with an understanding of the heart, the motives, the life history of the person that we're with. And really, we're, what are we talking about? We're talking about speaking the truth in love. So I want to ask you, uh, what kind of listener are you? And how good are you at asking questions? And this is a really hard one for me. Um, how in a hurry are you? I mean, sometimes people come to you and you see the issues pretty quickly, don't you? What do you want? Do you want efficiency? Do you want to be right? You know, this is the challenge. Hey, I told you the truth. What you do with it is up to you. Or do you want to be effective in loving people? To really know, know your brothers, know who they are, to know their history. And I, I would just add to this that you can trample people and destroy people either from the sort of theologically conservative side. These people had conservative truth. Right? They had conservative truth. And you can trample and alienate people there, or you can, you can trample and lead people astray from the, quote, liberal side, where you're giving up on Bible truths. And the, the last application that I would just make under this heading about know your brother is really more of a personal one. This text is one of the classic texts about conscience, the role of conscience in the human life. And so I would just ask you today, uh, how is your conscience? So when I talk to you about your conscience, 
what happens inside you. Are you at peace? Do you have a troubled conscience? And as we think about this, we have to say that our our conscience has to be informed and taught by God's Word. And, you know, some of you, your conscience is hounding you about how many calories you ate today. The the oatmeal and milk I had was about 450. Am I going to eat this other thing at lunchtime? I'm estimating that's going to be about 560. Where do we go? And, you know, then at 9 o'clock at night, you eat a whole bag of chocolate chips. And so your conscience is all torn up and, and aggravated about things that, you know, all the time that you were thinking about that, you weren't loving your neighbor or loving God with all your heart. So, so our conscience has to be educated. And then our, our conscience has to be cleansed repeatedly by the blood of Christ, doesn't it? So if you can't say this morning, right now, even after we've gone through confession and everything, that my conscience is at peace, what's the problem? Well, you need to come back to Jesus for sure, right? His blood is the only thing that can cleanse us to make our consciences clear from works that lead to death that we might serve the living God. That's Hebrews 9. You can go look that up. And He can give you peace of conscience, peace of heart, peace of mind as you confess and trust Him. Now, if you know that you're going to go out and trample your conscience again after that, are you going to turn to Christ and follow Him? Then you probably, if, if this is a repeated problem, you probably need to bring somebody else that you trust in on this to help you walk with Him. So the value of a clear conscience is really highlighted in these texts. It has to be informed by God's Word, and it has to be brought under the power of the Gospel so that the Gospel can quell our overactive conscience or our our stained conscience by real sins. So this is a Gospel invitation. Will you smile and be happy about this? That Jesus, the Son of God, has died and He's been raised so that your conscience might be clear and your heart might be at peace. Believe on Him. Rest on Him. And then the last thing that we would say, so what we've established is you want to be careful with humility in your knowledge. And then the last thing that we want to say here is that that your knowledge has to be submitted to love. If you look back up at verse 2, he says, this so-called knowledge that you all have puffs you up, which is a euphemism in the language for being arrogant. This knowledge makes you, you arrogant, But love, if you'll love, it actually builds people up in Christ. It strengthens them to follow Christ. And so again, he says, if if you imagine that you know something, you don't really know as you ought to know. And then when you skip down to verse 12, verse 11 and 12, he says, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So these people had a true confession. They had truth on their side. But the text says they're sinning against a brother that was bought by Christ. You're sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak and you sin against Jesus Himself. When I sin against my brothers, I'm sinning against Christ because it's Christ in them, the hope of glory. 
And so he makes this startling conclusion. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I should make my brother stumble. Now we want to be careful about this. Paul is not taking a vow of vegetarianism here. When you put this into context, later on in chapter 10, he's going to talk about his directions for eating meat that, that was sold in the marketplace that might have been sacrificed to an idol. He's going to talk about eating meat when you go over to your friend's house and eat with them. He's not giving us a, wow, somebody's offended, so we'll give up. Is very specific here is that verse 10 says, if anyone sees you have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. So to understand... 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, you have to appreciate he's separating out the difference between eating inside the temple versus eating meat somewhere else. So it seems to me that this vow should be taken. I'm not going to go and eat in idle temples, and he's going to make that point later on. Well, with all that said, this is a complicated text. There's a lot of arguments about these things. But with all that said, what we're saying is, is your true partial knowledge that you hold in humility handled with love for the brothers and sisters whom you know in your congregation? Is your knowledge subject to love? Okay? And I just thought to illustrate this, I, I want to tell you a story about Shelly, my wife and myself. Shelly's not here today, um, but she gave me permission to talk about this. Uh, a long time ago, 12 years ago or something, we landed in Africa. We had prepared to go there for a long time. And, you know, you land there on your first day, you're all jet lagged, and you start to carry your suitcases up the mountain. We weren't living with any Westerners or anything. We were living about a mile up in the village. So it was like really a Stone Age village with people who had only been wearing clothes for, um, you know, 50 or 60 years or something like that. And and uh, it was a, you know, it was a very different place than anything that, that you would recognize. And the result of that, in part, was that um, Shelley probably lost about 70 pounds during our first stay there. So if you had seen her at the end of that stay, you, you wouldn't recognize her. She was sort of like skin and bones. And that, that had to do with seeing hungry kids out that weren't eating all day while their parents were in the field and baking bread and feeling guilty about it and eating and hiding and all the stresses and strains that had to be there. And then she and I had some pretty robust conflicts because she has a gift of mercy and she wanted to give out oil and vegetables or whatever else to the people who came by the house. And I saw pretty clearly, if you start doing that, you're going to always have a line outside of your house who people see you with, with unending resources from a Western perspective. And, um, you know, that's not what I was there for. So when I say that we had sharp conflict about that, I mean, we raised our voices and had, had conflict about that. So I would say probably Shelley was in a pretty bad spot by the time that, that we um, went off to Europe for our first sort of furlough kind of thing. So we're off to Europe and we're in Paris or somewhere where you know, there are showers and warm water and there's food and everything's nice. And at a certain point there, uh, she sort of sat me down and said, you and I have to um, talk about some things, sorry, and get some things straightened out you know, before we go back. And she had some very specific things. Hey, we're going to think the best about each other. We're going we're, we're to start off thinking the best about each other. And I don't remember what the others were, but... I would say, you can still see to this day, she communicated 
really, really well to me in love, some things that I'm sure she had knowledge about what was going on for months and months and months prior. So she could have said that any time prior, and it would have been true and right. But timing and love and effectiveness were everything. So I give her credit. I mean, she was clear leader in that relationship in that way right at that time, that, that she was leading in love. And so you, you, you see the reason I'm telling you that story is here's a person who's carrying around some truth that they could clearly see that was waiting in love for the right time for that to be effectively administered. So what should we do with this? I, I would just say that the application of this text is difficult because this, we often pick up this text about issues of, quote, Christian freedom. And you say, well, about alcohol or what constitutes modest dress or what are the particular things we should do in, in worship. Things that people can legitimately disagree about that are areas of freedom will say, oh, well, this person has a weak conscience. Or this person... Well, that doesn't seem to me exactly the point here. This is about idolatry and going into an idol's temple and destroying your brother, pushing them away from Christ into idolatry. This is a Ten Commandment issue, not a freedom issue. And I think he uses weak and strong in an ad hominem way because, again, later on, he's going to tell these knowledge people, you're wrong, you can't eat in temples. And he's going to say it in the starkest terms. So let's just be careful about how we apply this text and to be careful with that. So then what is the fair application of this? And I would just say, first of all, that the question comes to me and comes to all of us, are you in enough community anywhere for all this to make any difference? I really think that's the fundamental question. Do you understand what I'm asking you? Or what I'm saying? Uh, nobody's nodding. What I mean is this, that you have a garage door opener, right? And you live in the suburbs. And at 6.30 in the morning when it's dark, you back out of there with your electric garage door opener and you go off to work. And then at 7.30 you come home. You're not in a small group. You don't go to a CE class. You're not having fellowship with anybody. You watch John Piper online. You don't have any relationships with anybody where any of this would make any difference. Right? Isn't the presumption behind this that I actually could have either a negative or positive influence on other people by how I'm carrying out my life in community? So let's take that as a challenge and as a hopeful challenge that not only could I have a negative impact like the one that's described in this text, but I could also have a positive impact by speaking well of following Christ and modeling that towards other people. So, just uh, a note for those of you who might be something like me, or at least I have been historically and I'm trying to change. I know many of you have borne with me over, over the years in this, is that, hey, listen, I'm just telling you the truth. Like, what you do with it is up to you. We don't have a lot of time here. Let's just cut to the chase. I think that's counter to this text, Right? I've discharged all my responsibility simply by telling you what's true without regard to 
applying it or thinking about it in humility and applying it to your situation. Can you imagine a situation where you tolerate sin in another person in order to get at a deeper root issue? I think that would be one of the implications of this text, that I bear with another person in their struggles and sins to get at something that perhaps is more important. And so let's just think about this a little bit now, because this was about eating food sacrifice to idols, and none of us is going to run into that this week, right? You're going to go to Olive Garden and whatever. I, well, I don't see anything. Okay. <laughs> They're going to feed you meat and, or whatever. They're going to feed you noodles. I, I think you can get all the salad that you want, and you're going to be happy. Nobody's, nobody there that I know of is, is doing idolatry. But let's just talk about this. Let's say that you're having a conversation with another person who has their own business. Uh, something happened to me once at Olive Garden, but I restrained myself. So I have nothing but good things to say about Olive Garden. Even if your steak tastes like salmon. <laughs> I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> it's stuck in my mind. Anyway, I'm all for Olive Garden. Um, so what you want to be doing is you're, you're talking with your friend who owns their own business and, and, and you're encouraging them to reinvest, to borrow money, to expand, to whatever. You're just talking, talking. You seem to be having your, your banter. And let me ask you a question. Are you feeding in your friend the love of money that could destroy them? You see, that's an idol, isn't it? Greed? Love of money, it's a heart idol. Do I know what your idols are? Maybe I should know that before we have a conversation about things. Uh, what are your views about the Lord's Day? It's one of the Ten Commandments. How am I modeling and speaking about the Lord's Day to other people? When I'm conversing with somebody in a difficult marriage, am I actually encouraging them to run for the back door? under the guise of freedom? How, how, am I, how am I handling? What's my responsibility and love towards other people? So one of the conclusions of this, I think, is that if you stick with the gospel and gospel, the centrality of the gospel, you really can't go wrong by asking people, what's the Lord speaking to you about in your conscience? Do you know Jesus? How are you turning to Him in faith and repentance? Are your sins forgiven? Is the Holy Spirit empowering you to walk with Him? Those are all good questions and conversations that we can never go wrong on sticking with the centrality of the Gospel. So let me try to summarize. Again, for those of you, uh, next week is Palm Sunday, so we're going to talk about, we're going to take a break from 1 Corinthians after that is Easter. We're going to take a break. And then we're back to this, and we have all of chapter 9 and 10 to go on this. So there's lots more to cover on this, so you wait with bated breath. Uh, we're going to get to all of that later on. But today, let's just summarize what we've tried to take from this text is this, that we want to be wise in what we know and how we love other people. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for this, this text and we, we pray that you would uh, write these things on our heart. Lord, will you forgive us? Uh, we've already confessed our sins once today, but we can see in this that we don't love well or listen well many times. And uh, we, we are ignorant often of the consequences of our own actions on our brothers and sisters. 
And so we, we ask you, Lord, as people who believe in truth, that you would, would cause us to carry it with humility and in love for our brothers. So Lord, will you have your way with us? Would you, will you fill us with your Holy Spirit and that we might go out with joy, uh, trusting you to write these things into our lives. In Christ's name, amen.